In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ajal farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome once again to our life series. We were going through the ingredients that make an effective learner in Islam. And we said that many of the ingredients that we're looking at are sometimes presented in different books as being the manners of the learner or the etiquettes of the learner. Adab al-Mut'allim. In fact, we have a number of books by that title. Adab al-Mut'allimin and uh, in one version or another and inshallah today I'll talk about one of these books so given the the time that we have and where we are in the series today inshallah what we're trying to do is to wrap up this topic so that we can move to uh, the last of the topics that we have about the learner which is the merit of the learner the merits of the learner before we talk about the teacher so we have a few points to cover. I'm not going to go over the ingredients that we've covered until now. Inshallah, those are clear. And you can go back if you need a recap. Uh, the last time, the last couple of times that we met, we insisted on a number of different skills or arts, and we spent a bit more time on them. So one of them was listening. And the last time that we met, we complemented the discussion that we had on listening with a number of books from the Western tradition that also emphasize the importance of acquiring the skills related to becoming a good listener. Before that, we had talked about uh, asking and the importance of learning the skill set around asking the right questions at the right time in the right setting from the right person and not asking foolish things or asking too much or too little and so on and so forth. So inshallah, today, this is where we stopped. Today, what I want to do is, is inshallah, try to wrap this up as quickly as possible, so not spend too much time on this. There's a few points left that fall in this category of manners or ingredients. Inshallah, we cover them quickly. And then we can say we've uh, had a pretty exhaustive or complete discussion of that topic. And then I'll talk about one of the books that I think are very much worth knowing about uh, from our own Islamic tradition, from our own Shi'i tradition, that covers in part some of what we're talking about. And uh, inshallah, you'll find that uh, useful. So under this banner of the manners of the learner or the ingredients of the learner, and very much in relation to the last topic that we addressed before stopping for listening, which is asking, one subtopic under asking is respecting the order. And so there's a number of reasons why we talk about this. First of all, it's because we need to know if our religion has talked about these things, especially if we care about learning, we want to see what our religion has said about these things. And to me, the secondary point in a lot of the topics that we're addressing is that we see to what extent our religion has taken great care in even talking about these little details. That tells 
us a lot about how our religion views this in general, life in general, that it has not left any details to chance. And the topics that are important, our religion has given us a lot more details about them, even in the minutia, even in the very fine details and things that we may perhaps consider common sense or trivial. Our religion has not left it to chance. It has given us more details about them. So one of these has to do with respecting the order. So notice this story about from Imam Sadiq talking about the time of the Holy Prophet He says, "Ata an Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa alihi rajulan, rajulun min thaqif wa rajulun min al ansar." فقال الثقفي يا رسول الله حاجتي قال سبقك أخوك الأنصاري فقال يا رسول الله إني على ظهر سفر وإني عجلان فقال الأنصاري إني قد أذنت So two men come to the Holy Prophet وآله, Peace upon him One man is from Thaqif So Thaqif is a tribe And the center of that tribe was in Ta'if Ta'if is a little bit outside Mecca so the setting of this, the reason I mentioned this is perhaps because Imam Sadiq made a point to mention that one is from Thaqif and one is from Ansar. So Ansar, they're considered to be different tribes. So these are not necessarily two men who know each other or who come from the same background or, or, or. Okay, Ta'if entered as a, as, a, as a group, they entered, those inhabitants of Ta'if entered Islam much later. They were resistant to, to Islam initially. And they did not greet the Holy Prophet when he was in Medina, in Mecca, looking for somewhere to go before going to Medina. This is one of the areas that he, he was exploring or, or studying. And he went to them and they chased him away and they almost killed him when he was in Ta'if. And so he came back and then eventually he went to Medina. In any case, so Imam Sadiq says, two men come to the Holy Prophet. One of them is from Thaqif from the tribe of Thaqif, and the other is from Ansar. So Ansar are the two big tribes that were in Al-Madina Al-Munawwar. So two men come to the Holy Prophet, The man from Thaqif said, O Messenger of God, I have a matter to discuss. I have a question or something I need to ask you. Ya Rasulullah, hajati. He has a need for the Holy Prophet's time, attention. The Holy Prophet told him, "Qala sabaqaka akhuka al-Ansari." Your brother from Ansar reached before you, came before you. So, what did the man from Thaqif say? He said, "He said, but Messenger of God, I am about to travel and I'm in a hurry. I can't wait. I really have to ask what I have to ask." So, the man from the Ansar said, "I will allow it, or I will give him my turn." Okay, that's the story. That's all we know from Imam Sadiq salam. First, and what is our point from this, we're talking about the manners of learning. And we've been talking about asking as being a very natural, important part of being a learner. Here we have a very clear etiquette, clear manner presented in our religion, where when you're asking, there is an order. Whoever happens to reach first, to ask first, to be there first, they get precedence. And we're supposed to respect that order. Okay? Even that little detail is mentioned in our religion. So this is a, a more important topic than we may think. 
Okay, and we see the Holy Prophet, how he executes this. When the man even gave a reason why he should go first, because he's in a hurry. Maybe he's traveling with a caravan and that caravan is leaving and he can't stay any longer. The Holy Prophet still did not give him that permission. Okay, so that's the second point. The second point is that the Holy Prophet in this situation, he did not allow or not allow. Why? The Holy Prophet is respecting something else. He's basically saying there is an order here. Someone arrived first, so he has the right. The Holy Prophet is not going to take the right away himself. He will keep, the, he will respect the right of this person to ask his question first. Even though he is the one who controls all of this situation and he could easily say, no, you can go first, he doesn't. Because if he would do that, it's as though he is deciding to sacrifice the right of the first, the person who arrived first. But the Holy Prophet is respecting that right. He has a right to ask first. So he doesn't say anything. But then, this is where you see the, the kindness, let's say the mercy, the compassion of the other companion, the Ansari. He said, okay, I will allow it. I will give him my turn. I will let him ask first since he seems to be in a hurry. He didn't need to, but he did. But it means that the Holy Prophet wouldn't have allowed it himself. He wanted the order to be respected unless the person is willing to sacrifice his right in asking. Okay, so that right belongs to him. So that's the first uh, story related to this topic of respecting the order when asking. Don't jump. There's a line, there's an order. We need to respect that. That's part of being well organized. There's a hadith I thought that was also interesting since we're finalizing our topic about manners. There's a hadith that has to do with how people are supposed to sit in a gathering of knowledge. And this may be known, and it may work or not, but I thought at least I would mention it so that you're aware of it. Okay, Whether it applies in our setting or not, that's different. Okay, Imam al-Sadiq salam he says from the Holy Prophet إِذَا جَلَسْتُمْ إِلَى الْمُعَلِّمْ أَوْ جَلَسْتُمْ فِي مَجَالِسِ الْعِلْمِ فَدْنُوا وَلْيَجْلُسْ بَعْضُكُمْ خَلْفَ بَعْضٍ وَلَا تَجْلُسُوا مُتَفَرِّقِينَ كَمَا يَجْلُسْ أَهْلُ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ Okay, so what is the Imam Sadiq saying that the Holy Prophet says? He says, when you sit before a teacher or you sit in the gatherings of knowledge get near and sit one behind the other. So make a small circle around the person teaching and if more people come, you can either expand the circle or you sit behind the circle. So you make concentric circles as we say. Concentric as in, you know when you throw something in the water and you see a circle, then a slightly bigger circle and a slightly bigger circle. So you make rows in the form of circles around the person who is talking. Get near and sit with one behind the other and do not sit scattered about. And then he adds another detail, the Holy Prophet. He says, as the people of Jahiliyyah used to do or used to sit. Don't sit like them. They used to sit all scattered about. And obviously they're not sitting in a setting of knowledge seeking. They are probably sitting in general. Okay, the Holy Prophet is making a point here. If you're sitting just in general, this is just a normal gathering for entertainment, pretty much anything perhaps could go. But if the sitting is a sitting of knowledge, 
Then the Holy Prophet says, no, there's difference here. There's an etiquette, there are manners to be respected. Why? Here we can add a few layers, depending on how you look at all of this. The first one, and this is perhaps the most important one, it's for the dissemination of knowledge. And this is why I said it may or may not apply to us today. Okay? It does still apply, but not to the same extent. Why? Because many of us today, for instance, we use a microphone when we speak. Whereas before you're sitting and listening to someone, you have to be, the closer you are, the better you can hear them. When you're sitting far, you're probably not going to hear them. But it's, it goes beyond that. It's about the distractions. Where are you focused? The further away you sit from the person speaking, the more you're seeing other things and, and you maybe end up being distracted by other things, for instance. So the first point has to do with the dissemination, your ability to disseminate the knowledge and the person to receive the knowledge that you are sharing. That's the first point. The second point, there's a logistic component to this. Usually, if it's a gathering of knowledge, usually it's probably taking place in a, in a, in a, in a building, in a place of worship. In those cases, let's say it's a masjid or hsaniyah or in some sort of institute where people come to perform acts of worship and other things. Maybe someone wants to come in and perform a prayer, for instance. Sit on the side and perform a prayer, read Qur'an, do something of that sort. When you're scattered all over and the person is talking, you've basically taken the entire space when perhaps you don't need to. You want to perhaps leave room for another circle to form and for them to have a program and for them to have a discussion. That should be fine. But when you're scattered all around, you're taking the entirety of the place. And that point should be very clear. A third point or a third dimension to all of this has to do with the psychology of this. When you sit in a group, tight group, around one person talking, whether you're aware of it or not, there is a feeling of unity that forms. You are not the only person sitting there because you're sitting scattered. Everyone is sitting in their individual space. And you may doze off and think about all sorts of other things. And then you come back and you see where, where, what this, where the speaker has landed now and what are they talking about. When you're sitting in a smaller, tighter circle, there's a greater feeling of unity. You are all one. Okay? So that's, that unity is important. And this gathering of unity around knowledge is even more important. So that's important. The second psychological component to this is that this way of sitting is much more disciplined. This is not a sitting of, of entertainment. And this is perhaps what you can imagine when the Holy Prophet says, don't sit like the Arabs of the Jahiliyyah used to sit. You can imagine how they would sit, right? All these men sitting away from each other. They, you have to yell, you know, so that the other person can hear you and everybody has their own space. And this is completely different. There's a discipline around being in a compact sitting. And the best proof of that, so that we don't spend too much time on this, look at an army. When they walk, how does an army walk? They are as tight as possible. In fact, this is one of the criteria to see how much discipline they have, how well they have trained, is how tight can they walk? How many soldiers can you put in a com the most compact space? 
right? So this is what the Holy Prophet is saying. You sit as a tight circle around the teacher, and even when more people come in, you sit one behind the other. There's discipline here. There's order. Everything is organized. And this goes to the next level. So if you were an onlooker, just someone looking at these people from far, without even listening to what the person is saying, what would you say? You see one group sitting, everyone scattered all over the place, and one person perhaps speaking, and you see another group with one person speaking, and everyone is tightly in a circle around them. And when more people come, they sit right behind them. This is not the same type of setting. You're just looking at it, you can tell that there's a very big difference here. And if you are interested in knowledge, if, if your criteria is how effective is this for knowledge-seeking, then of course you're going to choose the group where everyone is sitting more tightly together. And this is also much more encouraging for the teacher, for the speaker. And this is something you notice a lot, by the way, when speakers talk, you see how distracted the speaker sometimes becomes because people are sitting so far away and everybody is focused on something else and you're not sure is the message actually getting across or not. Very different from a tight group around the person and everyone is focused just on that person. No distractions. Okay, So it's much more encouraging for the person speaking to have that type of uh, sitting uh, around them. And as I said, even for the onlooker, when you look from the outside, you can tell you can, when you see that kind of sitting around one person, you say, it's as though these people are so focused they don't even want to miss a word, right? It's, it looks very serious and disciplined, as opposed to, as I called it, a gathering of entertainment. Okay, so I thought this is an interesting hadith to, to mention and to kind of start wrapping up our topic around manners. I left it to the end because it perhaps has less of a spiritual dimension to it and it may or may not apply depending on the sitting situation but still I think very worth uh, knowing about since we were not leaving any details, right? There's two manners that are left. I want to mention them quickly but the truth is each one of these would require a much lengthier discussion and I'm not going to have that discussion now. We're going to come to these uh, later in one way or another um, because I don't feel like this is a natural space or place for these two and there are actually two more manners that I will mention a little bit later for which we are going to dedicate a lot of a number of lectures uh, so those we're also leaving for later but those two I thought that I would at least mention them so the first one has to do with what we can simply call knowledge of opinions the importance for the learner, since we're mentioning, I wouldn't call this one of the manners of learning, but this is certainly one of the ingredients of becoming a good learner. The reason I was hesitating whether I talk about this or not, then I thought at least I will tell you what the hadith say, but I will add this caveat. This is a very important ingredient, but it's important for someone who has covered the basics. This is not for the beginner. When you're entering into a field, this does not apply to you. But once you've completely mastered the basics in a field, then this starts to apply more and more. If you want to become an expert, if you want to become a specialist, if you want to move beyond the beginner level in any topic, then this is going to apply. Knowledge of opinions. So look at these, and as usual, you have to put the hadith together to get the full picture. 
The first one from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, من استقبل وجوه الآراء عرف مواقع الخطأ or الخطأ So the person, the one who faces so that's a specific way of saying things I'm going to come back to it the one who faces the different aspects of opinions the one who gets to know the different opinions or the differences between the opinions which is more accurate this is the person who will know the exact places of mistakes this is the person who can identify where a mistake is happening because they understand all of the alternatives they understand all of the opinions and this is my interpretation of how the imam is saying it he's not just saying he knows the ara he knows wujuh al ara he knows how these opinions differ from each other you understand how they are different why they are different what's the argument that is the foundation of each one of these uh, different opinions how do they differ to become someone who is more advanced than any field you can't be someone who just knows one opinion about a topic that means you've been exposed to a basic and that basic could be the right one for sure and you may not need more than that because you're not looking to become an expert in a field that's all you need in that topic but if you are looking to advance as a seeker of knowledge then you have to spend time understanding what are the other opinions about this topic how do they differ where is it that they are common they agree and where is it that they disagree and why do they disagree and what is the source of that disagreement and what are the arguments and so on and so forth okay and again i don't want to emphasize here that this is after you've covered the basics because if you spend too much time on different opinions from the beginning you're going to cause another problem for yourself and in fact, you see there are people who, there are people who fall on this mistake of spending too much time on opinions too early. They become like uh, collectors of opinions. They, they're always looking for what other opinions are there. And the issue with that, the fault that you may fall into if you're always just focusing on opinions, is that you become too relativistic too relativist in the sense that you feel or you actually believe that there is no truth. You're always looking for another opinion and another angle to it, but in reality, you don't believe that there is a truth to be found out. All the opinions are good and you're constantly looking for another way of looking at a topic. And this is a problem too. And it's a much bigger problem in today's world. In any case... So that's the first hadith. A second hadith related to this topic. مَنْ جَهِلَ وُجُوهَ الْآرَاءَ أَعْيَتْهُ الْحِيَلِ Imam Ali السلام, says, the one who lacks knowledge of the different opinions, he will be overtaken by deceit, by trickery, by weak arguments. Someone who's trying to fool you. And in philosophy and logic, they call it fallacy, right? An argument that is actually a wrong argument it's not a, it's a non-argument there's a, a logical problem a logical mistake in it but unless you're trained you won't be able to tell or you may feel like there's something going on in the logic here but you can't put your hand on it because you haven't studied fallacies and you don't know how to apply them to say this is the issue here right so imam ali says 
If you don't understand the foundation, the arguments, the basics leading to difference, differences or different opinions, then you're going to be tricked by false arguments. You're going to be tricked by deceit, by weak arguments, by fallacies. Okay? And this is something that may apply more and we're going to see it in the next hadith too. This is especially the case when someone, for instance, I don't know, they, they encounter to them what is an original thought for the first time. This is where you really start seeing the, the validity of this. You're studying a topic. You're thinking about a topic. You've been exposed to one line of thinking, one argument, one idea about that topic. That's all you know. It took you a while to understand it. Now you're convinced. You think you understand the topic. When you hear an argument that completely contradicts or completely different from the only thing you know about that topic, it may completely shake you up. This is the first encounter that you have with this argument. And you may be aware of this, you may not be aware of this. This is going to be the difference between you and someone who has already been exposed to this type of thinking or this specific argument before. Even though it may not be this one exactly, they know enough about it. I often tell people, they tell me about someone or something and quickly I can tell them, well, this is going to be like that. And, and it's not because I know the person or I know the book. I'm just trying to see in which category, in which type of pattern of thinking we can put them. Once you can, then you're done. You know the rest of it. Quick example. And this is a simplistic example and we can argue against it and so on and so forth. But as an example, I think it's good. A huge topic in philosophy, in theology, in today's world, the topic of how free is a human being. Predestination and freedom. To what extent is everything already preordained and to what extent is a human free to act and therefore how responsible are they for their actions. And there's all sorts of different arguments today, additional arguments than the ones that existed before. Okay, today, for instance, we talk about genetics, we talk about other things, social conditioning, psychology, that have become bigger arguments. Someone who has studied Islamic theology in depth would have been forced to study topics like Tawheed and Adl Ilahi in depth, and they would know the differences of the arguments, of the ideas, of the beliefs, for instance, of Asha'ara and Mu'tazila who discussed this topic to death for a very long time. We have centuries of scholars writing about this topic and giving different opinions about this topic. Al-Asha'ira have said and Al-Mu'tazila have answered. And Al-Mu'tazila said and Al-Asha'ira have answered. And like this generation upon generation of scholarship. And of course, Shia will add another perspective to this. When this was happening at the time of the Imams, and they would come to the imam and we have, it became a huge principle. And that's why the Shia are different. They don't fall in the school of Mu'tazila nor the Asha'ara. Even though many simplify it and say it that way. And I think it's because they misunderstand what the imams are saying. Or they haven't actually studied the topic in depth. When the imam said, La jabra wa la tafwil, walakin amrun bayna amrain. 
Okay? It is not jabr, it's not predestination, and it's not tafwil, it's not delegation and complete freedom. It is a matter between the two. A matter between the two matters. There is some freedom and there is some predestination. Okay? And there is something in between. So that requires a whole lengthy discussion. If you have taken the time to study all of this, you haven't taken the time to study what's going on in today's world and how so-and-so might say that you know a materialist thinker, a materialist philosopher would say, no, there's absolutely no freedom of choice. Human beings are completely preordained, chained up by the matter in which they exist, their genes and the material causes of the world, whatever the argument may be, there's a few versions of it. If you have studied all of that before, it's not the same exact arguments, but you recognize the pattern. The thought that you're encountering, it's not the thought that you someone would encounter for the first time. And so it may cause a huge shock to them. And you have absolutely no bearing, no, no ground to uh, uh, react from. You're going to look at it raw, and because you have no foundation to use, you're going to be entirely taken uh, without anything to counter. So either you, if, if on the spot you react too quickly without thinking about it, without you know, seeking more knowledge and learning, it may completely shock you and change your entire belief system. This is just an example, but everything in life is like this. If this is the first time you're encountering a thought, an idea, and you don't have even a pattern that looks like it, that you can come back to and rely on as a foundation, you were not exposed to different points of view in which you can take back something that you're encountering now and bring it to, then of course it's going to be a shock. You're of course going to be lost. Of course you're not going to be able to react in the appropriate way. Okay, and this is the importance of knowing opinions. It's not that I certainly, uh, I necessarily want to follow these opinions or agree with the opinions. It's that I understand how opinions are formed, how arguments are built. How do you, uh, do you understand arguments through history? How do they evolve? How do you find their strengths, their weaknesses? How do you build on, on them? What types of arguments can you come up with? Rational, philosophical arguments are very different from emotional ones, very different from scriptural ones, very different from historical ones. Each one of these is different, and you have to know when to use it. The more you're uh, exposed to different opinions, the more you learn this to the point where it, all of this becomes second nature for you. As soon as you're exposed to an idea, as soon as you read a book, you hear someone talk, right away you're analyzing and assessing, is what they're saying true or not? That's, that's a point. Regardless of what they're using to prove it, the idea in itself, is it valid or not? What are they using as evidence to justify this uh, opinion or this idea or this theory? Is it valid or not? And so on and so forth. The next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, we can go a lot faster here. The one endowed with intelligence is the one who can face the different opinions with sound thinking and an understanding of the consequences. So you have to have an ability when you see all of these. That's why we said it doesn't necessarily mean that because you're being exposed to all sorts of different opinions, it means that you're going to be affected by them. 
right? You have to have a certain foundation. You have to have certain skills. Sometimes people say it's better to protect and shelter people and not. No. What you have to do, you can't shelter and protect people forever. One way or another, you're going to be confronted and exposed to different ideas, different arguments, different theories. The idea is that you build what the imam is referring to as You have to give a skill set. You equip people with the skills required to be able to analyze, to understand when you look at an argument, bring it to its logical consequence. Where do you go if this argument is valid? If this idea, if this theory is true, what's the end? What's the consequence? What's the ultimate conclusion of this argument, of this theory, of this thought? Where does it lead us? Does it bring us in a good place or not? Does it contradict things that we consider to be true? Then there's a problem here. Because we can't have both to be true if these are contradictory. And so on and so forth. So here, you have the necessity of making sure that we have the skill set, the tools, the instruments required to enter into, and that's why I said we can't do this as a beginner. This takes time to acquire these tools so that when you enter and you are faced with all of these different arguments and theories, and as the Imam calls them, wujuh al-ara, the, the, the variety of opinions that may exist around the topic, that you're doing it in a skillful manner with ability and that it doesn't shake you up. You're able to assess it, to analyze it, to evaluate it, and to understand all of its consequences. The last hadith, uh, And again, this is a more advanced level. But this is very important, and inshallah, you keep these in mind as we move towards the discussion about the teacher. Here the imam is saying something very interesting. We don't really focus on these types of hadith a lot in our communities, right? The teacher can never be wrong. So here the imam is very clearly saying, not only is he wrong in a lot of cases, but you're supposed to have the ability to tell that he is wrong here and he is right here. Okay, The teacher cannot be infallible. We don't have anyone who's infallible. There are mistakes that will be made. That's normal. The issue is you don't recognize that this is a mistake and you take it as though everything is being truth. This is the issue. This is the mistake. So the imam says, a man will not know the mistakes of his teacher, a person will not know the mistakes of their teacher until he knows the variety of opinions. You have to have something that you can compare what the teacher is saying to it. And this is where you can start seeing the differences. And by the way, we could also flip it. The opposite is also true. So you can, you can basically tell the shortcomings of the teacher by comparing to other teachers or the opinions of other teachers. You can also tell the strengths of the teacher by comparing to others. And this is when you're going to start seeing that, no, no, there's something distinguished here that you don't find elsewhere. But there are also shortcomings here that others have rectified, for instance. Okay. So that was uh, one. I said there's two additional manners. That was one, the knowledge of opinions. The last one we wanted to finish with today of the manners is not rushing. And again, inshallah, the, 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 the link between this manner or ingredient of the learner and as we move to the teacher is clear. We have a lot of ahadith around this. I'm not going to go through a lot of them. Uh, I just wanted to mention a couple here very quickly. It's just to establish the point and inshallah we'll come back to it in, in different indirect ways. 
The idea is, as a learner, don't rush too quickly to start giving answers. Every day you're gaining in knowledge. Every day you're gaining in expertise. And there's no black and white here. There is no uh, switch that suddenly turns on and you go from being a learner to being a teacher, for instance. That, that doesn't happen. This is a continuum, right? There is an infinity of grades here of being a learner and at some point sharing that knowledge with others. It doesn't happen in a way where it's very clear, as I said, night and day, black and white, right? Learner teach. It doesn't happen that way. What happens is with time, there are circumstances and situations that will require someone to step up and do something with their knowledge, right? And this is where you have to make some decisions. How are you going to do that? And do you understand the responsibility that comes with that? And so in our religion, we have a huge amount of narrations, of teachings, telling someone who is a learner, if they're not even a learner, we should not even have this discussion, but unfortunately we need to, because there are people who are not even knowledge seekers who start giving answers and opinions and so on and so forth. But at least it's logical to think that someone who has been seeking knowledge for a while now feels ready to give answers, to give verdicts, to say this is right, this is wrong, this is true, this is not. Okay, This is where you have to be very careful. careful. Are you an expert now in this or not? Should you be the one giving this answer or maybe defer to someone else who has more expertise in this? Is there a necessity for you to speak up? And more importantly, this is how we have to view it, because whether you like it or not, there is a prestige. There is something attractive about being a reference, about being the person that people come to. But if you focus on that, you completely miss the point. And that's why we have so much insistence in our religion. It's, are you ready for the responsibility? And this is what we're going to see in the hadith, in this hadith from the imam. And I wanted to mention it because we've talked about it before, but I left this point without too much of a mention, so I wanted to finish it now. Hadith Anwan al-Basri. Right? And I've said before, and I don't want to emphasize on this, Hadith Anwan al-Basri, personally, I don't necessarily consider it extremely strong in the ruwaya sense, and the rijal sense, as an authenticity in ilm al-diraya. Okay, there are issues certainly in it. But the points covered in the imam in that hadith, many of them are very, very valid, and we can establish them from other hadith too. And they're rational, and they make sense, so those are the ones we focus on. Otherwise, as a hadith, there are issues with hadith anwan al-Basri. And unfortunately, I've seen over the past few years, but this has not started now, by the way, especially in the more Arfani school, the mystical school, there's a huge insistence on this hadith. And in fact, the hadith looks like it was created and written and drafted initially by Sufis who created it to, to, to validate some of their teachings, the, the Sufi, in any case. That's, that's uh, besides the point. So in that hadith, Imam alayhi salam, you remember Anwan al-Basri. I, I once uh, explained the, in, in a little bit more detail. Anwan al-Basri is this old man who has spent his life studying and he was studying under other scholars. And then he heard about Imam Sadiq alayhi salam coming to town. And so he goes and he tries to meet the Imam. The Imam would not meet him until after a while. And he goes and he uh, performs acts of worship, seeking, beseeching Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to change the mind and the heart of the Imam to finally allow 
him to, to sit and become one of his students. And so finally he goes and the imam meets with him and he tells him this hadith which the man writes. And so this is the hadith of Anwan al-Basri. These are pieces of advice that nine pieces of advice Imam Sadiq gave to him. He tells him each one, each three of the nine fall in one big category in your life. Okay, but generally speaking, it's about seeking knowledge. And you start from basically cleansing, purifying your heart all the way to things that are more practical. And so I want to focus on the practical ones because they have to do with this topic, right? And you remember we, we said he was probably around 90, between 91 and 94 years old at that time, Anwan al-Basri. So he's a very old man and he's very happy that he met with Imam Sadiq alayhi salam. And قلت يا أبا عبد الله أوصني فقال أوصيك بتسع أشياء فإنها وصيتي لمريدي الطريق إلى الله عز وجل This is when the Imam told him when he told him give me advice he told him I will tell you nine things and this is the advice I give to those who are uh, basically looking to go on this path towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I pray to God that he gives you the fortune to uh, apply yourself and uh, use these pieces of advice and then he says, So the Imam tells him, and I'm going to give you three pieces of advice about knowledge. One, So this is the first one. So ask scholars so long as you do not know. And beware of ever asking them out of obstinacy or to test them. And we spent a lot of time on this, asking with the right intention. So do not ask out of obstinacy and don't ask because you're trying to test the person. Okay? And beware of acting based on your own opinions. If you don't know, go ask the scholars. That's the first piece of advice. Second piece of advice. وَخُذْ بِالْإِحْتِيَاطِ فِي جَمِيعِ مَا تَجِدُ إِلَيْهِ سَبِيلًا and rely on precaution in every matter so long as you can. So which matter? The Imam here is talking about religion. In anything related to religion, act with precaution. This is not the time to be daring in religion. This is not the time to be brave. It's actually the opposite. Be cautious. When you have two alternatives, choose the more cautious of the two alternatives when it comes to religion. This is your eternal life. This is your eternal happiness. Don't be daring. Don't take risks. And the third piece of advice is actually related to this one. The third piece of advice, and this is what we are talking about. He said, وَهْرُبْ مِنَ الْفُتْيَا هَرَبَكَ مِنَ الْأَسَدِ وَلَا تَجْعَلْ رَقَبَتَكَ لِلنَّاسِ جِسْرًا And run away from giving verdicts, from giving fatwa, as though you... Exactly like you would run away from a lion attacking you. And do not use, I will say the, the literal uh, uh, words of the imam, and then I, I'll explain. And do not make your neck a bridge for people, the imam says. Don't become a means for people to cross, to cross to the other side. How? By giving them verdicts. By giving them fatwa by giving them religious opinions and religious answers from yourself. All of this should not be coming from yourself. Are you a scholar? Are you an expert in this? 
When you talk, are you talking with confidence because you have evidence and you understand the topic? Or can you defer to someone else? Defer to someone else. There's no shame in that. This is not my area. We should ask someone else. I can check. I can ask for you or I can lead you to someone who will answer you. Right? Don't, don't make, the Imam says, don't make your neck. Don't take on the responsibility and becoming the means for people to cross. Why? What does that mean? It means that in the afterlife when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to tell so-and-so, why did you do this? He's going to say, so-and-so told me it's okay. And I had confidence in them. I trusted them. So that person is now responsible. He has become the bridge. That person is now safe. The person who relied on you is safe because they relied on you thinking that you were knowledgeable. You're someone who is in the environment of seeking knowledge, learning. You're a maulana, you're a sheikh, you're a sayyid, you're in that world. So when they ask you, it's very easy for you to answer and they will rely on your answer. They are safe. But are you? Now when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turns to you and, say, and says, what evidence did you have to answer this way? This person relied on you. They trusted you. They trusted your expertise. You are presenting yourself as an expert to the world. Are you an expert? Or are you becoming a bridge for people to cross to safety when you, in fact, are not safe yourself? Right? So these are three pieces of advice from Imam Sadiq salam and another one from Imam Ali salam when he talks about al-mu'mineen, those who are pious, those who are real believers, those who are really faithful, at some point he says, يَسْمُتُ لِيَسْلَمْ وَيَسْأَلْ لِيَفْهَمْ This is person whose characteristic is that he remains quiet to remain safe. That's the key. He remains quiet to remain safe. He doesn't put himself at risk of answering when he should not be answering, taking on that responsibility when he shouldn't. He remains quiet to remain safe. And he asks in order to Learn, or in order to understand. He doesn't know, he asks. If someone else can take on the responsibility, great, why am I taking it on? Defer to them. There are plenty of people who are constantly putting themselves in that situation, in that position of being experts and answering questions. So they should be the ones stepping up. Okay, so the bottom line from this and this is something that comes back again and again. It's a bigger topic, but I thought we would at least mention it quickly as we're wrapping up the manners of the learner. This is something mentioned is that the learner should not rush into starting to answer and giving their own opinions, or especially their own personal opinions about things. And there's a huge difference when you are asked a question. There's a very big difference between giving your opinion and giving the classical answer to this question you don't need to give your opinion on everything you can just say this is what's in the books this is the opinion of the majority of the scholars because you know because you've studied and you're an expert and you can tell you know 80 percent of the scholars that's what they believe so you can say this is the majority of our scholars this is their opinion and there are one or two other opinions the person is not perhaps, most likely, not really interested in you. You're, you're probably not special. They're not really looking for what you have to say. They're looking in general, what is the Islamic position on? Don't give your own personal opinion where you stand on. No one cares where you stand. You're not that important. Okay, We come and go. Religion stays. That's the, the point here. 
Okay. The two last topics related to the manners and the ingredients of the learner that I'm not going to address now, we're going to address later, as separate topics. But these are mentioned as being very important manners slash ingredients of the learner. The first one is prioritizing knowledge. You, we cannot know everything. And from everything that we can know, we should not attack sciences or types of knowledge in a random way uh, or, or uh, in a scattered way. It can't be all over the place. There has to be an organized way in which we go on that path of learning a field and those fields come in an order of priority, not where my interest is. I go to the fields where I should learn a field in order to learn the next field. There is a certain order, a logical order, to learn in our religion. There are things that need to be acquired. There are basics that need to be acquired before you jump into other topics. You're, there will be holes in your knowledge, in your worldview, in your understanding, if you haven't covered the basics. Okay, So there is a certain prioritization, prioritization that you have to do. You have to say, what is my first priority? I have to put them in order. Some of them you can study together. Some of them you have to study before or after. This You have to have an understanding of this before you jump into knowledge seeking. And inshallah, we're going to talk a lot more about that as a topic. What does our religion tell us to do when it comes to prioritizing knowledge? Which knowledge should we learn and in what order? Okay, We have plenty in our uh, religion about this topic that's one the second topic that we're not talking about now but inshallah we're also going to talk about at length not too much not as much as the first one but we'll talk about it enough is the importance of choosing the right teacher for every field that you're learning so inshallah we're going to talk about that when we talk about the teacher the next part in the series we're, we're going to finish we're almost done with the learner we're going to move to the teacher, so we'll definitely talk about the characteristics of the teacher, and therefore it's going to become logical who to choose as a teacher once we understand those characteristics. So inshallah, those two are going to be topics that we're going to address in more detail later. I'm mentioning them now because they usually are presented as part of the ingredients. I call them ingredients. They're called usually adab. Uh, the manners or the etiquettes of the learner. So allow me to finish, so that we wrap it up as we said today, with a mention of a book. And we will come back to this book, and I have used parts of this book until now, and I will continue to use it, but I thought I would just talk a little bit about the book now. One other way that we could have chosen to deal with this whole um, topic, subtopic in the series, everything related to the learner, the teacher, and uh, uh, the subtopics related to that, instead of doing what I'm doing, we could have taught a book. We could have commented. We could have read a book together and provided a, a detailed commentary on that book. Because that book contains a lot of what we're talking about, even though I'm not relying on it a lot 
I'm, I'm using a completely different structure and different arguments and different hadith. That book is called Munyat al-Murid. Or there is a version of that book that is actually called Bughyat al-Murid, but this is probably how they used to write before, and it's very difficult to tell the words apart. Otherwise, they look exactly the same, depending on where you put the dots. Munyat al-Murid fi adab al-Mufid wal-Mustafid. And I found out, I think, three or four years ago, the book was actually translated, The Desire of the Aspirant. I haven't seen the translation myself, but I know that it exists. And uh, this is a book that I had the fortune of, of studying and teaching more than 20 years ago. And it contains a lot of what we're talking about. So before I talk about the book, who wrote the book? The person who wrote this book goes simply in our Shi'i circles by the name of a Shaheed al-Thani. Okay, his name was um, Ahmed bin Ali bin Ahmed and he was referred to as Zayn al-Din. Zayn al-Din bin Nur al-Din al-Amili, al-Shaheed al-Thani. He was a huge scholar. He lived about uh, 500 years ago. So this is a book written about 500, five centuries ago. And he wrote a large amount of books. He left a, a big legacy in his short life. Um, he was killed and, and he was either 54, 53, 54 years old or 43, 44 years old. So between 40 and 50, depending on, there's two versions of how his death, when his death took place and how exactly it took place. The long story short, he lived at a time, like many times in history, where the hatred against the Shia was, was unmatched, unparalleled, impossible for someone to live freely and in a dignified, respectful way, even for someone like him. He, he was what we would call, you know, the learner par excellence, you know, the person who epitomizes a, a learner. He travels the world looking for the best teachers. So he has studied a lot under huge Sunni scholars. He looks for the best teacher in every field. And he masters that field under that teacher and he moves to the next and to the point where he was considered a genius in his time. And when he started teaching, uh, the people who would learn under him, uh, they were not only Shia, they were Sunnis and Shia. They would come to him from all over the world to learn under him. He, wa he was known as a genius and in multiple, multiple fields. And so uh, Shahid al-Thani was, was uh, uh, at some point he went back to Lebanon I believe he was born in, in Lebanon initially, Jabal Amil, but he traveled the world basically seeking knowledge and he came back eventually to, to Baalbek. He lived in Baalbek, but he could not live a normal life because of the oppression against the Shia and how much hatred there was against him that he was Shi'i. So eventually he moved to a town, a much smaller town, to, to be able basically to live more dissimulated, but he was also performing the duties of a faqih and a jurist. And so at some point they say there's all sorts of things were being written against him and being sent to the emperor. Uh, and perhaps there's a lot of versions of this, but they say in one version there are two people who came. He judged in favor of one against the other. This person was unhappy. He wrote more about him. So basically this was raised to the emperor of the time. As the story goes, the emperor, when he heard about him, he was not really interested in having him killed as they say. 
When he heard about him and how exceptional of a human being he was, he wanted to see him live in front of him. And he said, I will gather scholars from all over, from the different religions and the different madahib. And I want him to, to debate them, to argue with them in front of me. I want to see his genius at full display in front of me. So go get him, bring him to me. And so they say when they came to ask him to, to go back to the emperor uh, with them, he asked them to go perform the pilgrimage first, and they accepted. So he performed the pilgrimage, and after, on the way from the pilgrimage back to the emperor, they said that they beheaded him somewhere near on a, on a beach. So now, was this actually a misunderstanding that the emperor actually wanted him dead, executed, beheaded, or not? Unclear. But that's how the, the story goes, that... The emperor basically blamed those who were bringing uh, a Shaheed al-Thani to him as having basically taken the initiative and having misunderstood his orders to bring him and not to bring his head as they did. They only brought his head back to him and apparently he got angered and frustrated and because they did, he wanted to see him. But all of this could also have been very much a ploy to use them as a scapegoat. Uh, he wanted him dead, but he did not want the people to... Uh, basically consider him to be the killer as we have seen throughout history from Imam Hussain onward. Right? So this is a very uh, typical pattern. In any case, so Shahid al-Thani is one of our big, big scholars uh, in the Shi'i tradition, uh, truly a genius, and uh, some of the Sunni scholars have actually even written biographies about him, uh, how, how illustrious and how in awe they are of of uh, his knowledge and the legacy that he has left behind and the multiple fields in which he was an expert uh, and his worship and, and his knowledge in general. And so one of his books is this book, Munyat al-Murid fi Adab al-Mufid wal-Mustafid. As I said, the only translation, official published translation that I know of it is called The Desire of the Aspirant. Um, on the etiquette of the teacher and the student. I think that's the full name of, of that book. And I think some of your brothers here have a copy of it. So this is a book that talks about the spiritual aspect as well as the practical aspects of being a learner, a seeker of knowledge, as well as being a teacher. And in fact, he also talks about being a jurist and a judge. But we'll leave that apart. That's at the very end of the book. And so we're not going to talk about everything, but there's a lot in that book that could be very useful to everything we're talking about. There are two sections or three sections that I thought I would summarize very quickly because of the importance of that book. So today, if you were to go to the Islamic seminaries, to the Hawzat, and you wanted to study uh, somewhere in your first few years as part of your akhlaq lessons, you would most likely study his book. And this is, by the way, a huge telling sign, and that's why I'm talking about it today. It's very difficult to dislodge a book, but if there is something much better, it will be dislodged by something better. So 500 years later, this is still one of the books that are taught in the Hawzat. There's a reason for this, right? And when you look at what's out there, the truth is it is so dense, there is so much content included in this that there is no really good reason to... Uh, replace it by another book. So this is part of the curriculum. If you were to go to the Hawza, you would uh, be taught this book as part of the curriculum, especially for the akhlaq and adab part. So in that book, 
and even the structure of the book is really good. The, the arguments are, are amazing. The hadith are really good. There's a part where he talks about, he uses a structure that is the same for the learner as the teacher. And the structure is that, first he says, let's talk about the things that are common to the learner and the teacher in general. And then let's talk about the things that are specific to the learner, and then the things that are specific to the teacher, and then he presents them in three points. The things that are specific to the learner in himself or herself, the things that are specific to the learner with regards to the lesson, the setting of the class and the, the, the learning of knowledge, and what is specific to the learner with regards to his relationship with his teacher and his colleagues. And then he does the same thing with the teacher. What is specific to the teacher in himself, the characteristics and so on and so forth. What is specific to the teacher when it comes to the knowledge setting, the classroom and the teaching and so on and so forth. And then what is specific to the teacher in terms of the relationship with the students and the people benefiting from their knowledge. So that's kind of the, a structure for those parts, very important. So I thought I'd summarize that, the, the learner part. Okay, and this is a lot of pages that I'm summarizing very quickly here. So, the manners of the learner with regards to his studies, because that's, I think, the most important part. So the reason I'm talking about this, first of all, inshallah, you find just this introduction and the mention of the book useful. And I think because we're talking about this topic, just so that you're aware of what's out there in our, in our own heritage about this topic, and I think this is perhaps the most important book to know, if you had one to choose, that's one. And two, I think it's a good recap of a lot of what we talked about and what we will continue to talk about. But the, the bullets that we're going to talk about, the points that we're going to talk about, I think they summarize a lot of what we're talking about uh, in a very compact way. So the manners of the learner with regards to his studies. Okay? So during the lesson, before the lesson, after the lesson, and so on and so forth. First, the importance of the Holy Qur'an. So this is one of the things that he starts with. You have to know the Holy Qur'an. You have to learn the Holy Qur'an. Okay, The Holy Qur'an has to remain something that is prioritized in your life, whether you are a beginner or you are the greatest of scholars on earth. Okay, Everything begins and ends with the Holy Qur'an. So you cannot overlook the Holy Qur'an in any knowledge seeking that you're doing Islamically. That's one. Too. And the Holy Quran, inshallah, maybe in the future we can talk about maybe a program and how to uh, address, how to embark on studying the Holy Quran. Prioritizing of knowledge and mastering what is learned before moving on. So each one of these, by the way, is a heading with a whole lot of talking under it. I'm just giving you the, the headings and the, the high level thing. Prioritizing of knowledge. So you study the right thing at the right time. And you master what is learned before you move on. And this is a huge mistake that sometimes people do. You want to move on too quickly and you haven't finished a topic. And now you're not ready for the next topic and you're forgetting what you learned. You haven't even acquired it fully and you're already to something else. This is going to amount to all of this disappearing very quickly. And you've just wasted months or years learning it. Okay, second point. Another point. Reviewing and ensuring the validity of what is known. So this is important from time to time, and this is perhaps the importance of writing. You want to see, what did I learn? 
what are the points, what are the topics, what are the issues, what are the arguments, what are the fields that I have learned over time. From time to time you want to review them and you want to validate what you learned 20 years ago. Today you may have been exposed to different kinds of knowledge. Is that still valid? Because you relied on that knowledge to, to accumulate more knowledge and to build all sorts of conclusions on it. Was that still valid? You constantly want to go back and make sure that what you, you knew was correct. Readiness for knowledge. So this is, in other words, preparing yourself to receive knowledge. And so there is a, a material component to this. There's a psychological component to this. There's a spiritual component to this. We've been talking about all of that. But readying yourself, the readiness for knowledge. I just wrote material and psychological. That's what he talks about. And he talks about the importance of writing here. How important it is to write. Writing during, writing after, and presenting what you write to the teacher or to others to make sure that it represents what you learned. Discuss what is learned with others. So one more way to validate what you have learned. Appropriate time management. And I think we spent enough time on time management, so he talks about it. Importance of exposure to hadith. And inshallah, this is the part that even though we're not explicitly saying it, inshallah, you're seeing that this entire series is based on Quran and hadith, only and only. Okay, we complement with other things, but really the, all of the ideas, all of the points that we're covering, they come from the Holy Quran and the hadith only. So he says, when you learn religion, unfortunately, so this is a, a genius point from him that he's mentioning this. In a lot of cases, like go back in your own life and see when you learned religion, were you actually learning the ahadith that go with every point you're learning? No. You're just being taught. You know, information is being dumped on you, but you would not be able to locate or to identify or to repeat, and this is where it comes from in our religion. This is the hadith, this is the ayah, this is the, the proof for it. You don't know what is actually religious and what is someone's interpretation. How far is the interpretation from what was in the hadith? How much of this is an opinion? You don't know. He says, as early as possible, be exposed to hadith. And of course, this also means, as early as possible, start becoming understanding the sciences of hadith. But that's a, another discussion. Okay, Always strive for more, he says and not feel content with the little that you have. No matter how much you have, keep in mind that this is very little compared to what is out there. So don't be happy with how much you have. Focus on how much you don't have and keep striving for more. Give priority to attend in person, which can never be replaced by anything else. Don't rely on books, as we said, and today don't rely on not attending in person, even though we're enabling you to watch by YouTube and Facebook. To be highly respectful when attending knowledge lessons. Consider the setting of knowledge sharing to be a sacred setting. Okay, Do not consider that to be just a normal gathering. And we talked a little bit about that at the beginning. Many scholars, he says, have mentioned that this is one of the instances, by the way, where many of our scholars say there's a debate when you, when you study fiqh. You know, for instance, when you enter a room and people are praying, actually you should not be saying salam because we constantly always say, say salam wherever you enter, even if you're alone, say salam and answer your own salam, so on and so forth. There are conditions or there are circumstances, situations where you should not be saying salam. 
One of them is if you realize people are praying, don't say salam. Because someone has to answer. And sometimes everyone is praying. So someone is going to go out of their prayer for a second to answer your salam because they have to with the same salam. When someone says salam, you have to say salam. Or they say salamun alaykum if you're in prayer. You don't say wa alaykum as salam, by the way. If they say salamun alaykum, you reply salamun alaykum. You say the same thing that was said. Okay? Because you're in prayer. But someone has to answer. That's a sacred word in our religion. If someone says it, someone has to respond to it. Okay? So when you enter, make sure that is this a place where you should say salam or not? One of the settings our ulama say where it might be preferable not to say a salam is a knowledge gathering. You enter a place where people are learning, don't interrupt with a salam. Keep your mouth shut, sit on the side and wait for the knowledge seeking to stop and that's when you do your salam. Because this is an interruption and it's not necessary. Okay, and people write to me all the time or they tell me why do you keep saying salam when people enter into the, the lesson. Okay, um, so he, he basically is stressing the fact that when you attend lessons, be highly respectful when you attend. Uh, make sure that you do not make anyone move from their spot. Make sure that you do not interrupt. Make sure that you do not discuss any other matters than what is being discussed in that knowledge setting. Uh, do not join conversations if you are not invited, and so on and so forth. Okay, so he goes into all sorts of details. To be general, generally well-mannered, and he's going to come back to this a little bit later, To as a knowledge seeker, you should have a very high standard of manners. But he's going to add, to be generally well-mannered with others who are seekers of knowledge more than with other people. If you know that you are a seeker of knowledge and you know so-and-so is also a seeker of knowledge, that person is now special. You are now part of a different community. You should have good manners with everyone, but that person has to have a distinction to you. So imagine what he's going to say about the teacher. Okay, But this is very important. He says these are communities and your manners have to be elevated with someone who is also a knowledge seeker. Wait his turn. Just always wait your turn to talk, to ask questions, so on and so forth. We talked a little bit about this when we began today. Not take more time and not take more attention than others. And we've talked about this too. When you ask, when you interrupt, when you add a comment, when you don't consider yourself special in the sense that you should not be taking more time than everyone else. If you guys are 10, then you represent one-tenth of that time, one-tenth of that energy, right? Not 50 or 80%, which sometimes happens. Show respect to the teacher and pray for the teacher regularly. So this is the one part that I will ask. And I'm going to come back when I talk about the teacher, by the way. I'm going to come back to some points that I want to say. Okay, show respect to the teacher and pray for the teacher regularly. Inshallah, you guys always do that. Show respect for those who are more knowledgeable among the learners too. Not all learners are equal. Some of them have been learning for a longer time. Some are So these are two things he is saying. These are two topics that we're not talking about. We're just mentioning the topic. That These are distinctions that he is giving to people in the community. Based on what? based on their level of knowledge only. If someone has more knowledge than you, you respect them more. 
If you are all knowledge seekers, there is a greater level of manners between you, of respect between you, because you guys are knowledge seekers. To help the newer students with advice and experience. You may know of a good book or lectures or topics or practices, whatever it may be, help the newcomers. And it's already going to be intimidating for everyone who joins later. It's already more intimidating for them. They know they missed out. They know that they're behind and they're lagging and they're trying to catch up. Go out of your way to help them, to, to help them to get to wherever you guys are at collectively, the sooner the better. The other part of the book, in general, purify your intentions, clean your heart, so that it becomes, and he spends a lot of time, and that's the beauty of that book, by the way, that you can feel like he is an extremely spiritual person. So every word he's writing, it's, yes, there is a practical dimension to it, but there's a, a huge and much more spiritual dimension to it. So he says, everything you're doing, make sure that the heart is pure, the intentions are pure and clean, he says, so that it becomes a receptacle. Make sure that when you're learning, consider your heart to be a container of light, a container of knowledge, and knowledge is light. Your heart has to be pure, has to be clean, so that it's worthy of keeping that light. If it is not, that light won't stay. Seek opportunities of free time. Seek opportunities of youth and health and manage your time well. Again, time. Okay, we don't know when we're going to get sick. We don't know when we're not going to have the freedom or the flexibility or the luxury of time later. Cut off ties from distractions and impediments. This one is really tough. Okay, anything that can be a distraction. If you want to become a serious knowledge seeker, knowledge takes time, it takes dedication, it takes energy. What is draining your time? What is draining your energy? Who is draining your time and draining your energy? That's a very key component, and he's going to talk more about this. He says, including social interactions, including social ties. People who are not interested in knowledge seeking. He says, try to create a distance with them. They don't have the same general aspirations as you. This is not a common goal. They're looking for something else. They don't care about time like you do. They don't care about the same things that you do. You don't need those people to be holding you back. People who have too much free time. People who are interested in chilling. People who are interested in entertainment. They just want to spend three hours doing nothing. Watching TV, walking, talking. Is it going to advance anything or is it just taking time? If it is, it's an issue. Okay, we're not talking about family here. We're not talking about spouses here. We're not talking about... That's different. Okay, every moment spent there is an investment. Okay, different or contradictory interests. People who are interested in much or very different things in life. There are people whose main goal right now in life, for instance, is just amassing money and wealth. If your point is to become a knowledge seeker, you're interested in knowledge. There's something contradictory there. Okay? Those who are beneficial to your purposes and to your spiritual growth, as he says, at the key. This is, by the way, we have a... a, a uh, a saying, a narration from Imam Ali alayhi salam. He says, this is a person you should befriend. At-taqi, al-dhaki. That's it. He combines everything in two words. Someone who is pious, God-fearing, and someone who is intelligent. Someone who has good judgment, sound, wise. Those two together, that's it. That's all you need. That's a friend. Okay? To support you, to remind you, to help you, 
to console you, to teach you, to inspire you, to motivate you. Okay? This is the person that you want close to you. This is, this is someone who will help you grow. This is a person who picks you up when you're down. All of that. Take it seriously. Knowledge requires serious effort, energy, time, money, all of that. Sacrifices. Take it seriously. It's serious business. Do not delay. Do not postpone. Do not wait for a better time if you can. If you're waiting for a more perfect time to become a learner, it'll never happen. Or you may wait for a very long time. If you have an opportunity to learn now, learn now. Learn today. That opportunity may not exist tomorrow. Prioritize knowledge. We talked about that and we'll talk about that much more in detail. Avoid jumping from topic to topic until you complete a topic. The last part, in general, the importance of maintaining strict observance of religious teachings. You are a knowledge seeker. Before you become an expert, before you, you learn all the different opinions about a topic, make sure that you are observing the obligations and the prohibitions, the wajibat and the muharramat of the religion. This is the basics. Okay, that's one. You can't be spending time in the luxuries, in the uh, things that are secondary, acquiring knowledge if your obligations and prohibitions are not observed first. Okay, that's one. Two, he says internally as well as externally, you need to work on your spirituality because you're a knowledge seeker. This has to show. The point of knowledge seeking is what? The whole point is to become better internally. Spiritually, you have to become better. If the knowledge seeking is not making you better, there's an issue. And we went through so many ahadith when we talked about sincerity of intention and how knowledge has to lead to action and how it has to transform you internally first. We talked about all of that. So in short, this is what he will say. Observance of moral perfections and avoidance of imperfections. You know what are the things that are expected of you. You have to elevate your standard now that you are a knowledge seeker. So observance of and avoidance of. Observance of generosity, good manners. This is a, the stuff that he talks about in the book, so I'm mentioning it. Generosity, good manners, patience, a welcoming demeanor, forgiveness, truthfulness, helping others, kindness. People need to, when they think of you, they need to have this in mind. You are a knowledge seeker, therefore, it's showing in everything you do, in your demeanor, in your characteristics, and your traits. Fear of God, not limited in prayers to wajibat. Moderation in speech, dignified appearance, reciting Quran and being knowledgeable of its meanings, not only concerned with knowledge, because those who are only concerned with knowledge and they forego at the expense of always at the expense of worship, I'm a knowledge seeker. And because we're going to see, inshallah, when we're going to talk about the merits of the learner, how much better it is to become a learner than to become a worshiper, someone may might understand from this that it's as though our religion is saying, don't worship. No, it's saying don't worship like an ignorant person, okay, like, uh, like a fool. It's not saying don't worship. So here he's saying, the person who spends time only in acquiring for the mind and nothing for the heart, this leads to a hardening of the heart. That's, he talks about that. 
generally following the tradition of the Prophet and Ahlul Bayt in everything. So that sums up everything. Avoidance. Avoidance of what? Avoidance of envy, of jealousy, of arrogance, condescendence, of hatred, of anger, cheating, trickery, repulsive manners, competing over gains of this world, giving false flattery, distortion of the truth, concern with the imperfections and shortcomings of others, backbiting, lying, using vulgar language. So this is everything that he listed and he talked about in in sections in the book, that as a knowledge seeker, and eventually as a scholar, all of this should go without saying. Unfortunately, that's not always the case, but there's an additional responsibility here. He's making the person feel like, now that you carry this knowledge, people are equating you with this knowledge. You are now a representative of this religion. The knowledge that represents this religion. How do you act? How do you behave? People are not, no longer looking at you as just the personal you. You represent more. The moment you're really starting to be associated with knowledge, that moment you start being associated with more. You're no longer just yourself. You are more than just yourself. Do you understand that responsibility? Today, in today's society, in today's world, I would say it's even more. We're minorities here. We stick out. Everybody recognizes us. You have that responsibility. Whether you want to accept it or not, it's been dumped on you. You are here. People recognize you. They say, this is Islam. It's not there's an Islam in theory and then there are the Muslims. Which Muslims, this is our favorite argument, right? Make a distinction between the religion and the people and how they practice it. When you see something wrong, it's not Islam, it's the Muslims. Well, the truth is there is no Islam outside. Islam is how people practice it. And so you as the more of a representative of Islam, because of your knowledge, because you have put yourself in that position, you're now carrying that knowledge, you have to show that in your actions much more than everyone else. Whether it's at the level of the wajibat or at the level of the mustahabat or even the spiritual characteristics. Okay, so let's stop here. I didn't want to go any further. Inshallah, we can say that we wrapped up this topic. I, I know I took a little bit longer, but I wanted to finish it off until we move on to the merits of the learner. And the merits of the learner, to a, a certain extent, it's a complement to the importance of learning, which we began the series with. But this is now with a focus on the person learning. What do our traditions say about this, this person learning? That the merit that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or our religion gives to someone who is now a seeker of knowledge. And then that will wrap up that topic. Well, the dimension of the learner entirely. And we will move on to the teacher and what our religion says about the teacher. Okay? Questions, comments, concerns? To say yes, go ahead, say. <laughs> it gives me a break. Yeah, tell that. In the corner of the book, you mentioned very briefly not answering the questions where you're not invited. Yeah. Uh, in what context uh, is that? Because uh, sometimes there's a, um, uh, I gather you see a benefit to me, they want to, you know, go to the, the point of 
Yeah, so uh, it's an excellent question. Um, there's a number of things that he says to do and not to do. And this is, by the way, I remember, as I said, I think it was yeah, around 20, maybe a little bit more years ago that I taught this book. And uh, I remember as we went through it, um, there's a lot of things in there that may not completely work for today's world because it's a completely different setting. Okay? The bottom line, though, the conclusion from this is that you're supposed to be doing everything that uh, exemplifies respect and good manners. And you're supposed to avoid anything that uh, leads to disrespect or something being uh, interpreted as being rude or lacking manners. So this is one example of that, is if people are talking and you jump in when you're not invited, when it's clearly a discussion between two people, for instance. This is where it's a problem. Not, you know, there's a clearly an, a public setting. Anyone can come and go into that type. In fact, the more the merrier, probably. Uh, that, that makes for a richer discussion. Uh, but if it's clearly you feel like there are two people discussing something, you know, and it's more maybe a one-on-one -on -one discussion, you know, unless they open the door or invite you in somehow, maybe it's better to just leave that at that and you can address it later one-on-one -on, -one on your own time, in your own way later. But not when it's clearly a public setting. So if it's a knowledge setting, that's where it's... Uh, I think that the what he has in mind is in a lot of cases... You will see people, for instance, in a, in a class or, or a lecture or people coming one-on-one -on -one talking with the teacher about a specific thing. This is perhaps not the best time for you to jump in. Maybe this is something, there's an already an, an ongoing discussion between them you don't know about. has been going on for 10 months and you jump in with, you know, your inter interjection and it doesn't work, for instance. Things like that. Yeah. Otherwise, jump in. Anything? No? Probably just to comment. I uh, like when you uh, mentioned the uh, seating aspect uh, as one of the manners of the learner. Uh, because in certain communities around the world, you uh, can really witness that uh, in, uh, in the good way and in the bad way. Uh, sometimes you could feel that uh, there is much more of the discipline in certain communities as in the way that they're seated. Even uh, in the modern day, uh, as we said, some things may not apply because uh, maybe the, the rooms, the way they're uh, probably designed, mm -hmm. even at university level, yeah. uh, where I was thinking, for instance, where tables are all straight, but they're not in a, in a health, uh, health circle, mm -hmm. and you can feel there's a difference for sure. And I... Um, I also think it's uh, there's a, a notion of, dis of respectfulness in that manner, where uh, you see in certain societies where the, the teacher is always elevated above the learner, uh, and no matter how the learner needs to be at a lower level, not only because he has a lower level of knowledge, but also like, physically has to be a low, at, a low, at the lower level. And uh, likewise for you know, sitting in the masjid, uh, we're told uh, not to have our feet, uh, for instance, in front of us, or disrespectfully, uh, and, and so on.
Yeah, that's an excellent comment. There's a lot that we can say about that. It's important. We we kind of I think we neglect it. I uh, I I had heard and and read uh, this hadith, uh, but when I I was preparing for it, uh, the part that um, had not stuck in my mind uh, that that jumped at me a lot more is uh, the part that the Holy Prophet says as the people of Jahiliyyah used to do. The ending of the hadith, that to me is was striking. It's one thing to say, sit in a certain way, don't sit in a, don't be scattered, sit in circles, one behind the other, compact, close to the person teaching, okay? And don't sit scattered. That should have been enough. No, no, he added something. He added, as the people of Jahiliyyah do, or still do, or used to do, Okay? So that to me is, there's something else here that the Holy Prophet is saying. Those people with their arrogance, with their manner of seeing the world, uh, of course they would sit scattered and they will yell at each other and they would talk in this macho way and they would, of course it would be like that. And as though the person talking, um, especially if it's a knowledge setting that the Holy Prophet is saying, it's as though what they're saying does not really concern you. You may take something from what they're saying. You may not because you're see, you're seated in your own little spot away. So if you're interested, you may jump in with something, and otherwise has nothing to do with you. You're you're not even really. It's not it's not for you, right? And uh, yeah, it's uh, but all the points that you're talking about and the importance, it, it goes so much more. We may think that it's trivial, but it has so many layers and so many consequences, how the seating is done, how the, the logistics of the, the setting. In, in universities now when we teach, there's always a, a line in the evaluation that asks, was the learning setting conducive to learning? Did it contribute positively or negatively to your learning experience? Right? I think we need to do that in our, in our, in our marks, mosques and centers. Is the place conducive to learning? Are you... Uh, is, it, is it conducive to someone actually receiving the information in the best way, most effective way? And if not, what do we need to do? More curtains, less curtains? of... <laughs> <laughs> be uh, on has to be on huh um so is it conducive to learning it's not always conducive to learning um the uh in the time of of uh, the greeks so this is an excellent point and and how they would uh, always gather and talk in this uh, half circle amphitheater um actually there is more organization especially uh, like that school the Pythagoreans, uh, where they had a whole step-by-step um, -step process to become someone who is accepted in that community as a true student of, of especially uh, Pythagoras himself. At the beginning, you are given certain instructions, for instance, and you have to follow those instructions for a while uh, as a test. 
you know, you become vegetarian, you're only allowed to eating some things and wearing some clothes and so on and so forth. You pass those tests, then you are allowed to learn from the students. You're not allowed to hear the teacher or see the teacher. You are allowed to learn from the students, so you can start seeing that it's a cult, but in any case. After a while, you're allowed to sit, but you can't see. You're only allowed to hear the teacher. Pythagoras sits be behind a curtain when he gives his lesson. Okay, And there's a reason for this. Okay, And then after a while, you're allowed to sit much closer. And then after, it's like you graduate and you're the elite of the students. That's when you're allowed to see the teacher and spend time with the teacher. You've spent time, you've been initiated, you've passed the tests. And so... That's, that's an excellent point that uh, you're raising. They thought a lot about all of this. It was not just randomly happening. There were reasons for this. We're not necessarily saying we do this now, but I think it gives a lot more value. You understand and appreciate that relationship in a very different way than, you know, everyone is sitting scattered and you don't even know, are people part of the lesson or not? Are they listening or not? Are they interested or not? So a very, very different setting, but that's, uh, that's an excellent point. Asanto. When you spoke about the hadith of Imam Ali, the one who faces the different aspects of opinions, this is the person who can identify the mistakes. And I, if I correctly, you said that there is a danger of also knowing the of opinions to the point where you become a relativist. And uh, it came to my mind that um, there are some very renowned scholars uh, that, are, that have written, for instance, about Islam or about Shi'ism, but uh, are not Muslim, for instance, or are not uh, Shia. And they have uh, studied uh, in depth uh, the sciences, the theology, the differences of opinion, but have never really come to an opinion themselves. And so it made me think about uh, these, uh, these scholars, actually. I don't know if we should call them scholars, because they, they, they have a strong... Um, they, they know a lot, but uh, maybe yeah, this, is a, this is something that came to my mind. Yeah, the... So, so the point about the, inshallah, the, the, the question or the comment is, is, is heard because it's really good. Those people who know a lot of opinions and they become experts in different opinions and they can write full-length books that are extremely good and useful to others, for instance about Shiism, but in the end they, they don't ever themselves uh, openly or even not uh, seem to accept the truth that they know so well. Um, and I don't know if this is more nowadays than, than before, uh, but this is certainly more a symptom of the times than before, you know, since, since modern times, since the time that philosophy seems to have become your ability to question. I remember taking philosophy courses where you, they, they define philosophy as that constant questioning. And questioning is good and questioning is healthy to find the truth but that's the point. It's to find the truth. It cannot be your permanent state for life. Philosophy should not be defined in this way. That's not the point of philosophy. Philosophy is a field like any other. I define philosophy as an expertise in notions, period. 
your ability to understand, to define, to reflect on notions at a very deep level and use notions. It's ideas, abstract notions, concepts. That That's really what you have as a skill set as a philosopher. It's not your constant questioning of things. Then what? What's the point of questioning if you're just turning in circles and living in doubt? And can things be known or not? If they can be known, they should be known. Otherwise, why? And that's a whole other discussion on where it, what it leads to. There's entire schools of thought that, that live in this uh, constant doubt and questioning, and they believe that nothing has meaning and there's no purpose to anything, and then you become cynical and absurdism and, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think this is a, a part of it too. It's It's almost like I have so much objectivity that I will never actually declare myself to be this or that or to accept or to reject. My job is just to describe. And this, by the way, was a huge shift in, in, the, in the humanities and in the, in the sciences, especially you know, after World War I and World War II. A lot of the thinking in the world changed. The biggest thinkers, they started going from what they called prescriptive or normative theories to descriptive ones. So my job as a big thinker, my job as a psychologist, my job as a historian, my job as a linguist, is no longer to tell anyone what to do and what not to do, or that there is a right way and a wrong way. My job is just to describe. My job is just to tell you, here's a grid and here are tools, and this allows you to analyze, but not analyze to say this is right and this is wrong, because who knows what is right and what is wrong. I will analyze everything to death, but there is no right and wrong. Right and wrong are subjective notions. Okay, and I will not push the scientific debate and discourse, which is supposed to be descriptive, into my subjectivity and say right, wrong, good, bad, good, evil. We don't do that. Okay, that's a whole thing. You know how, how there was a shift in theory for those who are, who are interested from normative prescriptive theories to descriptive theories in the humanities and the social sciences and other fields too. So I think that's part of it too. And maybe we're adding way too much analysis to the discussion and there are people who, subhanAllah, they know and they are scholars. I would not hesitate. You hesitated in saying, I don't know, call them scholars or not. No, they are scholars. We have ulama and we have scholars. Someone who has knowledge is a scholar. What they do with it, we also have ulama su and, and we have ulama who are abrar and akhyar and atqiya. They are scholars. We, we cannot uh, you know, uh, d- discredit or not give them the credit that is due. They have the knowledge. It's what you do with the knowledge that, that really matters. But the knowledge is there in a lot of cases, more than you and I may have on a lot of topics. Tell Yeah, so so the what in what sense are they scholars? That's a that's a big discussion, uh, but really it comes down to by our standard or by God's standard. That's what we mean by our standards, by the standards of this world. They are standards. They are scholars. They have knowledge. They have ilm. It's just what you do with that knowledge, and for sure we think that they don't meet, and that's why you know inshallah we're going to talk a lot more about who is the scholar. And we're going to add that spiritual dimension to it. The moment you add it, of course they don't meet it. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have if it's not leading to becoming a better person. 
Imam Ali alayhi salam talks about people who are filled with knowledge. And he says, وَآخَرْ أَخَذَ جَهَائِلَ مِنْ جُحَالِ He acquired ignorances from people who are ignorant. He took knowledge. He studied for years. He knows the Holy Quran. He's a faqih. He's a qadi. He's a, he says, وَآخَرْ قَدْ تَسَمَّ عَالِمًا وَلَيْسَ بِهِ He called himself a scholar, but he isn't. He isn't one. أَخَذَ جَهَائِلَ مِنْ جُحَالِ وَأَضَالِيلَ مِنْ ظُلَّالِ he took misguidances from people who are misguided and ignorances from people who are ignorant. Okay, he called himself, everybody calls this person a scholar, but by God's standard, this is not a scholar because those conditions are missing. But the truth is between us, wouldn't we say that person is a scholar? Of course we would. That's only when you add the spiritual dimension to it. And that there's a part of it that we can talk about, but there's a part of it it's a little also dangerous to talk about. Because who knows? Who knows amongst us? Who knows how can you assess someone's intentions, someone's sincerity, what's in someone's heart? Okay, And in that sense, would the person be a scholar or not? Right, And the biggest example of this is Iblis. Scholar or not scholar? Scholar, the biggest of scholars. No, more, no one has more knowledge than Iblis. He was teaching the angels for thousands of years, as Imam Ali salam says. Thousands of years, he is a teacher of the angels. What is he teaching them? I don't know. It's not the type of knowledge we have. He is a scholar. He is a alim. But it's not only about ilm. Right? So this is where you have to add the spiritual dimension to it. And then, yeah, he will, he will no longer meet the, the, the criteria. Tawadudu. Amazing observation. Really good. Thank you for connecting that. They're very good. That was a hadith from Isa alayhi salam. Right? That it's part of a... Ahsant. Yeah. And so part of our duty as a, as a knowledge seeker is not only to recognize and to accept the truth from people of falsehood, but to also recognize and reject the falsehood from people of truth, right? Al-Batil min ahl al-Haq. And they, they are good people, and their intentions may be good, but they will make mistakes. So we have to be able to tell those mistakes apart, and this is one of the ways. You have to know the differences of opinion and be able to tell them apart. Otherwise, they'll be stuck and you'll follow blindly in that in that opinion too. That's excellent observation, Hasanto. We stop here. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين